Cultivating Place is made possible in part through the generosity of the Caddo Shaw Foundation. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. In our ongoing exploration of who gardeners are, where gardeners are, and what they are growing in this world, I am so pleased to be joined today by an artist, a creative spirit, and a wonderful voice for plants and places in our world. Nina Vetito is based in North Carolina. Online, she is known as Blue Ridge Botanic, where she shares her artistry, but also her passion and voice for the secret stories of plants, weeds, flowers, and all other kinds of wonders of our natural world. Nina, you and I have followed each other for quite some time. We've corresponded by snail mail for years and email as well. And I am just super excited to be in conversation with you. Welcome to Cultivating Place. Thank you, Jennifer. I am just thrilled to be here. I, as you say, have been a fan of uh, Cultivating Place for quite some time, and I am just so excited to have been invited and to be sitting here with you. Thank you. As a person telling these plant stories, when you think about it in in overview, what do you think is the role or the symbolism or the importance of plants in your life right now? I would say that plants are both a medium for my artistic expression but they have also become a portal through which I have expressed the world of story and have been able to connect to um, a community of incredible people who are also interested in plants and their stories and their mythologies. Yeah. It seems, you know, from my seat that they have, the way you have gone through this portal opens up for the rest of us who are following along the rich history of connection between plants and people and places over time and space. And that is one of the greatest values I think we we can perpetuate as humans. Absolutely. I agree. You know, we, we are so um, dependent on these plants, you know, but most of us aren't even aware of that basic relationship, you know, the exchange of oxygen and carbon dioxide, so essential, but plants tend to just be a backdrop for people. But there is just this incredible intersection there between people and plants that is so rich in culture in story and part of what i'm trying to do is help people see that you know and recognize that these plants have stories and we need to pay attention to those stories because there there are stories too honestly i don't really consider myself a gardener at this point in my life um I think of myself more as a plant person, a plants woman, and I 
am very much a proponent of the sort of Mary Reynolds philosophy of guardian versus gardener. Um, we built this house and we we bought the lot because of this just extraordinary white oak on the property. And so for me, it was important to allow the forest to recover and to grow what it wanted to grow. Mm -hmm. So I have at this point, what my job I feel is to just keep the invasive at bay and just let the earth grow what it wants to grow. And as a result, I have found all kinds of special things. Uh, a beautiful little patch of trillium grew up and I found some jack-in-the-pulpits and just recently a whole patch of enchanted nightshade, you know, has just come up. And so, um, yeah, that it just feels like a way to just allow the earth to grow what it wants to grow for a change. Okay. I like it. So take us back a little bit. You are a, an artist, very botanically based, uh, or at least much of what I have seen of your work is very botanically based. And you live in North Carolina, but take us back to where you were born and raised. And who were the kind of highlight people, places, and plants that grew you into a person for whom your artistry would focus on the botanical and your relationship with your home and and land space would take this expression at this time in your life, Nina? Well, I would have to give a lot of credit to my parents there, um, particularly my father, who I actually don't think of him as a gardener necessarily either. Um, I think of him as a plantsman. And of course, he was a forager as well. But he he grew things. He grew pots of herbs for my mom. My mom was an amazing cook. And actually, some of my earliest memories are of you know, nibbling on those parsley pots or eating leaves from the mint bed. But yeah, I, he didn't have a formal garden in terms of vegetables or flowers, uh, but he was always interested in the green world. And one thing he did, which was really important, was he designated um, trees in the backyard for us. So an oak for my brother and a willow for me. And um, those trees were so special to us. I mean, they were almost like extended family. Yeah. And we were, uh, you know, on any given day, we were climbing them. Uh, they were pirate ships. You know, um, I can remember when um, Star Wars first came out, we were probably, I guess we were about maybe seven and eight, something like that. And as soon as we got home from the theater, you know, we climbed straight up into the oak tree <laughs> and reimagined the entire movie all over again. Yeah. Right there. So unfortunately, Hugo took out my willow, but um, as far as I know, the, the oak tree is still there. And yeah. Um, was that in North Carolina? No, that was in Charleston, South Carolina. Okay. Born and raised there. Um, so basically an urban environment, but my brother is a forester. <laughs> He's an arborist for the city of DC and he is, uh, yeah, they call him the tree whisperer and oaks are still really important to him. 
But yeah, and you know, I would say even though I grew up in an more or less an urban environment, um, there were two things that my parents gave to us uh, that I think were really gifts. One is what I affectionately call uh, the gift of a feral childhood. Yes, <laughs> a great true. gift. Yes, a great gift. <laughs> And um, the other is the gift of a storybook childhood. As I said, it was it was sort of an urban environment. Yeah. But um, and I grew up in a neighborhood called Ansonboro, which at that time was what you would call sort of a marginal neighborhood. There was quite a bit of diversity, both in race and also economic diversity. So, for instance, there was a woman, an old woman who lived behind us and sort of catty corner to us who um, had a dirt floor and chickens and a rooster. <laughs> and I think, well, my parents had moved to Charleston from New York City, um, which is where they had met. And my father was originally from upstate South Carolina, and my mother was from a long line of expats. She was raised in South America. Um, but they met in New York City and they had my brother there and I think quickly decided that they really did not want to raise their children in the city. Mm -hmm. So my father was recruited um, by the Medical University of South Carolina. And so they moved to Charleston. And Charleston at that time was a sleepy little town. Um, so I think for them, it was it was small town living yeah. and they just let us go. And we went. Yeah. 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 <laughs> you know? And as soon as we could get on bicycles, we would put our guinea pigs in the bicycle baskets and we rode all <laughs> over town. And Charleston is full of little alleyways. And most of the gardens are behind gates and walls. Some of which you can see through. So they right. like, they right. have little secret sensation, you know, set personalities. Yeah. Exactly. So it, it definitely had that sort of secret garden feel to it. And yeah, yeah. Uh, so there was a lot of a lot of exploration. But our in the summer, we spent our summers in North Carolina. My father's family had a, a longstanding tradition of going to the highlands of North Carolina to escape the heat. You know, mm -hmm. many South Carolina families do that. Um, so that was his happy. And that was my mom's happy place. And of course, it became our happy place. Right. And as I mentioned, he was a forager and he loved mushrooms. So he would take us out and he would teach us about the chanterelles and the bleats. And we would gather them up and bring them home and cook them up. And yeah, those were those were super happy, happy times. Yeah. Well, and as you are telling these stories, like, uh, originally, you your presence uh, online specifically has been very focused on your your artistry. But in about maybe for the last year, a little bit more, you have expressed very passionately this sense of stories of wonder and relationship to the outdoors, and this idea of getting to know things and uh, know plants and places and fungal relationships as though they are friends and their stories behind them. And I'm getting all of this, your artist's eye, your sense of magic, your sense of exploration, and that opening that story allows us in this world. So take us along. You grow up 
doing what you say is not gardening, which I love. This is one of like the great threads of conversations I have with people of what gardening is or isn't. And to me, you know, foraging and and watching a white oak and climbing up in a willow, these are all parts in my mind of gardening, which has a lot of other baggage that goes with it, as we know. You grow up, you decide to go where and do what? At what point do you take on uh, the study and mantle and practice of fine art? Take us down that road. Okay. Well, can I stop for just a second? Yeah. And circle back to that idea of the storybook childhood. Yeah. What I mean by that is that not that we led some sort of an idyllic childhood per se, but more that we were read to all the time. Yes. That's what I gathered. That's how I, that's how I heard what you said. Yeah. And again, circle back to my dad for just a minute. My dad um, was a psychologist, um, Mm -hmm. but he was a very specific kind of psychologist. He was a Jungian analyst. Many of Carl Jung's theories are now very much a part of our vernacular. You know, the concept of introvert, extrovert, you know, was his. And, but one of his most important theories was that of the collective unconscious and the archetype. And the archetypes are these sort of multi-layered, I would say, vessels of universal wisdom, uh, which are embedded in stories and myths and fairy tales across the world, right? So those stories were basically required reading for us growing up. And I think as a result, um, that was really the way that we, you know, started to look at the world was was through that lens. You know, the, the landscape was a storied one. And it also cultivated in us almost like a radical empathy for the natural world and all the plants and creatures in it. You know, so if we saw a little mouse scamper by, you know, that wasn't something that made us scream. And we in a million years wouldn't want to kill it because that was probably, you know, Poppy Eyebright from the Brambley Hair series <laughs> who was, you know, gathering food for her larder. So the stories were just part and parcel of our childhood in that regard. In high school, I became very interested in art and decided I wanted to go to art school and that I also wanted to leave the South. That was very important to me. Um, So I found a little college in upstate New York and went up there to to experience my first winter, (laughs) which was incredible. Actually, the first time I had experienced four full seasons and it was it was just so so important and a really pivotal time. I chickened out on the art school part of the equation, but I did leave the South and basically just ended up majoring in art history and museum studies. But then after college, I came back to Charleston for about a year between undergrad and graduate school. And I got connected to a professor there at the College of Charleston by the name of John Rashford, um, an ethnobotanist. And he was working on a project and invited me to be a part of it. 
it was a project that he'd been asked to do by one of the oldest AME churches there in South Carolina in Allendaw, uh, which had been very hard hit by Hugo. Mm-hmm. And the project was to survey um, the graveyard. So I remember standing there with him and he pointed out a huge hedge of gardenias that was separating the church and the graveyard. And he said, I can tell by the size of these gardenias that they were here from the very beginning of this church because gardenias grow very, very slowly. But that hedge is serving a really important function. And John is from Jamaica and he was raised, you know, in the islands in all of the the lore associated with that. And he explained to me that in the African diaspora, it's very common for people to plant sweet smelling shrubs between the church and the graveyard in order to keep the spirits of the dead from wandering around. So if those spirits, you know, decided that they wanted to get up and, you know, run riot around the countryside, those flowers acted like scent traps, you know, (laughs) and if you've ever smelled a gardenia, (laughs) you know, they were probably onto something because who wouldn't want to stand around and smell the gardenia? So I just was amazed to think that, you know, the landscape was just full of all of these hidden stories, you know, just waiting to be read. And I probably should have right then and there stopped everything and applied to become an ethnobotanist, (laughs) but I didn't. (laughs) I, I went to graduate school for something completely different, but that was just, that was a really pivotal moment for me and one that I came back to many years later. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. We're speaking this week with artist and plantswoman Nina Vetito. Nina is based in North Carolina, and while she's been an artist for some time, it was her participation in NYU professor Elaine Ayer's Quarantine Herbarium Project that was a notable seed for Nina's process leading her to launch her Secrets of the Wildflowers Instagram Reels. We'll be back for more with Nina and her storytelling story. Stay with us. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by the Caddo Shaw Foundation. The Caddo Shaw Foundation funds initiatives that empower women and help preserve the planet through the rich intersection of environmental advocacy, social justice, and creativity. Hey, it's Jennifer. One of the things that I really sort of heard and held from my conversation with Nina was this concept of practicing discovery. I really like that. And I think it's what we're doing as gardeners at our best, at our most open, our most compassionate and empathetic and learning. We're practicing discovery inside 
and outside. What do you think? We're back now to our conversation with Nina Vetito of Blue Ridge Botanic and the Secrets of the Wildflowers Instagram Reel series, as well as a newly launched podcast named Flora and Forage. So back in 2019, I was a kindergarten teacher, but prior to that, but decided to leave the classroom at that point. And I decided as I was approaching the age of 50 that it was time for me to do the things that I'd always put off, right? To really delve into the art that I had so longed to do and, you know, other life things had come up and priorities had come up, but now is the time. So I signed up for a uh, botanical art class Mm -hmm in January of 2020 Mm. and, um, you know, got to it and was so enjoying that. And then we know what happened. We remember, (laughs) wait, we were there. Everything shut down, of course. And um, so I was left with this intention, but no real way to kind of, you know, follow through without the, you know, the instructor and the classes and that type thing. So I um, nevertheless thought, okay, I'm just going to keep going with this. And I um, discovered an online, what was called a, a, the Quarantine Herbarium Project that was run by um, Elaine Ayers at New York University. And I signed up for that. And what was great about that was it got me outside looking at plants and, you know, discovering new plants that I that I never knew of before. And at the same time, I started to experiment with some what they call alternative photography. Um, and that's where I got into cyanotypes. So cyanotypes are a form of cameraless photography. And what I would do would be to take the plant material and lay it on paper that was sensitized. Um, with a UV sensitive solution um, and expose it to sunlight and then develop it in a water bath and you end up with, in essence, what is a contact print. And traditionally, well, do you want me to talk a little bit about the history of the cyanotype? Yeah, I think I would love that because it's got its own very deep, rich history that goes back in botanical artistry uh, a very long way. And so it has its own symbology in there as well. Yeah. It does. That's exactly right. The cyanotype medium was invented by Sir John Herschel back in 1842. And he was sort of this polymath genius who uh, was looking for a way to copy his astronomy notes. And back then, Photography was just getting started, and it was all based on chemistry. There were no cameras. And so he developed this method of capturing light. And when you look at the word photography, it it literally translates to writing with light. Um, And he figured out a way to make this happen (laughs) through the use of of an iron salt solution. And that 
medium eventually became what we know as the blueprint. But he had this very interesting neighbor by the name of Anna Atkins, who was a botanist and a botanical illustrator. And she had collected this massive herbarium of seaweed. I mean, over 5,000 specimens, I think it was. And she knew it was an important collection, but she also knew that there was no way she was going to be able to sit down and illustrate all of those specimens. So when her neighbor, Sir John Herschel, told her that he had developed this, you know, interesting way to copy his notes, she realized that that was going to be the way that she could document this incredible collection that she had. And so that's just what she did. And she spent years doing it. And, and it's um, a famous you know, collection, exhausted. right? Yeah. And it's a famous collection. Yeah, it is just, and it's so stunning and as beautiful today as it was the day she made it. But each one was handmade and hand laid. And so an incredible collection there. So so the the medium itself has its roots in a botanical tradition. Mm -hmm. So I started to explore that and I just fell in love yeah. with it. And I realized that it, there were almost these portraits of plants in many ways. They have this sort of essential, a specific evocative personality to them. Like I almost want to say it's like the spirit of the plant on paper. Um, and especially that, you know, very, um, I think you would say iconic at this point, the blue and white of of a cyanotype is has got its its own language or vocabulary that we are familiar with. And when we see it, we recognize it for what it is. And I have several of yours on my office wall here. And so you go down this path and you are exploring these different methods and these different histories. And I'm sure you're getting all kinds of triggers, right? From, from your Jungian father and, and your mother and just symbology and the richness of all of these layers in these, in these plants and these interactions with them. Tell us about moving into kind of the marriage between your curiosity and your creativity with plants and the artistry there, and then sharing the stories. And because this really kind of, I think, hit a sweet spot for you that has really resonated with other people in hearing your enthusiasm and all of the information that you share about plants and places and different ways of seeing them and understanding them. Yes, I, you know, it, it really came out of a desire to share these stories. But I will say initially, th this was about the time that Instagram switched to sort of a reels format. Something I have not moved with, but you've done great with. <laughs> I'm just like, well, I can't do yeah. it. I just, it's too noisy. But then some of them are beautiful like yours. Uh, right. Oh, well, you're very kind. Thank you. Uh, no, I mean, when that happened, in all honesty, I just thought, oh, Lordy, like, what is this introvert going to do with that? You know, mm -hmm. I, how could I possibly? Uh, because Instagram had been such a visual mm -hmm. platform and was so important for artists. And then there was this this shift. And it was 
Yeah, it, it was shocking and uh, very nerve wracking. But, I, you know, eventually I thought these stories are so interesting and I am so passionate about them. You know, maybe there are other people out there who would feel the same way, you know? So I started doing the reels. And it turns out when you do a reel, <laughs> basically you're you're talking to yourself you know so i do a lot of that anyway so it it would it wasn't like there was there was a big leap uh in that in that sense um you know it felt very intimate i'll say that you know it wasn't as you know for an introvert it was something that i was very nervous about but it it ended up feeling very natural yeah so i started sharing the stories and it turns out that yeah there actually are a lot of people who are interested and it, I am still just so pleasantly surprised and delighted by this beautiful and thoughtful community of people that have gathered around. And the other thing that is so fun, Jennifer, is that people will share their own personal stories with me. And they're so touching and so beautiful. You know, I mean, just recently someone said, oh, you know, they had, their grandmother had put aside money to have her favorite flower, you know, covering her coffin when she died. And I thought, you know, for someone to set aside, you know, a valuable resource like that, you know, money, and to, so that that flower could accompany them, you know, on this ultimately most important moment, you know, the, the ultimate rite of passage, right? I mean, how beautiful. And so I love, I love those stories, you know, and, and, but I think part of the success as well is that, you know, we are a storytelling species, you know, and it is how we make meaning. Yes, it is how we make meaning. It is. And it's how we relate to one another, you know, and, and they're everywhere. And, most of the time we don't even realize it. You know, it's like the oxygen we breathe. They're in the ads on TV and the music we listen to, right? I mean, every good country song has got a great story to tell yeah. you <laughs> or any, any song right. for that matter. But even when we sleep, you know, our brains are creating stories yeah. for us in the form of dreams, you know? So it is literally written into our biology and is somehow part of what we need. And I'll say too, I think at the end of the day, don't think science alone is going to save us. I think that we are going to have to find our stories, you know, and find those ways of relating to the natural world and seeing it with, through that lens and in that relationship. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. We're speaking this week with artist and plantswoman Nina Vetato. Nina is based in North Carolina. Tapping into an earlier interest in ethnobotany while she was at school, Nina recently, in the last year or so, began a series of reels on Instagram known as Secrets of the Wildflowers. They have been a remarkable success, landing in people's hearts and minds. We'll be back for more with Nina, telling us about her process and 
her newly launched podcast around these same secrets of the wildflowers. Stay with us. We'll be back. Hey, it's Jennifer again. I love how the seed of Nina's subsequent work was catalyzed by the Quarantine Herbarium Project. How yet another silver lining came out of such a fraught time in our world. When I went to do a little bit of research on this project, NYU's Dr. Elaine Ayers wrote this. It's modeled on 19th century botanical correspondence networks. This project, she says, is designed to connect socially distant plant lovers around the world while encouraging all of us to look closer at the plants growing in our immediate vicinities, the grasses, the weeds, and kitchen plants that we often overlook or houseplants and herbs from your indoor collections. She writes that by bringing the local plants we encounter on a daily basis into a single herbarium, we'll build a floral map and a diary of how we interact with nature even when we're stuck inside. Further in her write-up about the project, Dr. Ayers also cites the simultaneous projects of both the At Quarantine Herbarium on Instagram, a participatory botanical photography project led by William Arnold, Jem Toes Crichton, and John A. Blythe. That project coalesces disciplines of art making, science, botanical observation, and research practice. They say they are facilitating a thoughtful reconnection to the natural world and empowering audiences by offering them agency to participate in a wider creative practice. They go on to say that the quarantine herbarium based in the UK, seeks to alleviate symptoms of plant blindness through a hyper-local focus on flora while solving the monotony of lockdown through engagement with the accessible historical photo method of cyanotypes or sunprints. Dr. Ayers goes on to cite yet another project. She says, for a closer study of the practices of botanical illustration and an opportunity to participate in an illustration project, look to her friend and colleague, Jesse Wei Swan Chen's Hortus Floridus Lessi. In her project, Chen is asking for photographic studies of the plants you see in an effort to build a collection of watercolor flora modeled on 17th century botanical representations. These are just three examples of how plant-loving people the world over adapted, collaborated, and reached out to connect and connect to others in a time of isolation and confusion. And it reminds me just how much plant people are needed in the world. It reminds me of all that we grow in this world, including growing us together. These 
These are plant stories that form both art and meaning. Make sure to check out links to each of these projects over in the Thinking Out Loud section of this week's show notes over at cultivatingplace.com. We're back now to our conversation with Nina Vetito of Blue Ridge Botanic, who is also the creator of the Secrets of the Wildflowers Instagram Reel series and a newly launched podcast entitled Flora and Forage. In all of her studies, her art, and this newfound expression of her love of nature, Nina has always been interested in conservation, and she believes that we as humans are more prone to conservation if we can access it through the important role of storytelling. When Nina and I recorded this interview this summer, her new podcast was still a dream in the dreaming. As we come back, Nina shares more of her hopes for how to hold her accumulating research and stories in a more durable vessel. I would love to see these stories, the ones I've collected, and maybe even possibly the ones that have been shared with me in some more permanent vessel, (laughs) Um, perhaps a a book or, you know, maybe, maybe a podcast. I don't know. But honestly, Jennifer, the response has been such a surprise to me. And the thought that just a year ago, you know, a thousand followers, and now I have as many as I do, it's really a shock. And yet you also know because of the, the childhood you had, the importance of these symbolic stories. Like Jung told you what you needed to know to some extent, and you, whether you you meant to or not, you tapped into it for yourself and you reinforced exactly why these archetypes and mythologies that have, you know, Uh, similarities and replication, no matter where we live across time and space. I mean, it is a common ground, much like a garden. Mm, Absolutely. Yes. The stories that I've collected, the stories that people have shared with me, I would love to see those in some sort of more concrete form, you know, something Mm -hmm. that you could hold in your hand and yeah, a book. A book would be great. A podcast would be great. Uh, you know, especially with the capacity for the audiovisual um, element, because I think that's to some extent part of it, mm-hmm. the exploration, mm-hmm. your personal joy in finding a mushroom or feeding your friend that mushroom, which is clearly the one I just watched. But just <laughs> that sense of guiding someone to practice discovery. Mm. Mm-hmm. It is a gift that you were given by your parents and I was given by my parents, but not everybody's circumstances came with that same gift. And that to me is part of what the gift of what you offer out mm-hmm. uh, in your art and in your stories. I appreciate that. Um, and I will say, yes, I do think that, for instance, foraging for me was always an open invitation to connect, you know, and mm-hmm. When my father was teaching us, 
he was focused on what we should eat and not to be afraid of what we shouldn't. So it wasn't fear-based. And I and that to me is the mark of a lineage tradition, right? And mm-hmm. and that is something that I think unfortunately has been lost to a great extent. But that idea where you have a mentor, a compassionate mentor who shows you how to uh, forge with respect, how to connect um, with compassion. That was absolutely a treasure and a gift. And if there is some way that I can do the same, that would be such an honor to be able to do that. And if that comes in the form of a book or a podcast or, you know, I'm not really sure, but uh, this is all very new, but it is such a joy And it also has been such a fantastic way to connect with other people that I never really thought of in terms of social media. There are just incredible communities out there. Beautiful. Is there anything you would like to add? Uh, Here's what I would say. My invitation would be for people to, to get outside and start to get curious about the plants around them. You know, and it it doesn't, you don't have to have a national park nearby. You can just go out and look at that funny little weed that's growing in the, the crack in the sidewalk, right? Because I guarantee there is an incredible story there, right? <laughs> They're just, yeah. just getting outside and learning about these particular plants. And then the other thing I would say is to to encourage people to ask their friends, their family, their elders about their plant stories, right? Because, you know, it may sound silly, but just what is your favorite flower? Mm-hmm. Often there is an incredible story there, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, I, I can't go by a lily of the valley without thinking of my grandmother. Mm-hmm. And violets connect me to um, a great aunt of mine who I never met. Uh, but she loved violets. And now her story is part of my story, which I will then pass down, you know? So these flowers, these plants become a way for us to connect to our loved ones, um, but also to see the world in a new and compassionate way. Uh, So that's what I would encourage people to do or try to do. Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today. It has been so fun to talk to you, and I will keep following along with your secret stories of wildflowers and weeds and and whatever wonder you come across on your your journeys. And I couldn't agree more. The stories, uh, our own stories and histories with plants and what we know of our ancestral stories and and histories with plants uh, is knowledge to be passed on like the gift that has been given to us by people before us. Absolutely. Thank you, Jennifer. It's been wonderful here with you. So appreciate it. Mina Vetito is a longtime forager, explorer, plant lover, and art maker. She lives in the beautiful Blue Ridge Mountains of North Carolina, surrounded by the inspiration and materials she brings to her art. 
For as long as she can remember, she has been in love with the botanic world. She describes herself as somewhat plant-obsessed. At Blue Ridge Botanic, you will find information on flowers, folklore, foraging, and more. She invites listeners and viewers to follow along as she explores the special places and plants that inform her work and hopefully get some inspiration from her on how to connect to the botanic world in a more joyful and creative way. Nina hopes you enjoy and are deepened by these shared plant stories, and she hopes you will be moved to collect and share your own. As a former environmental educator, conservation has always been important to Nina. A portion of all proceeds created at Blue Ridge Botanic goes to help support the work of United Plant Savers. Nina regularly donates proceeds to conservation efforts, but also also hopes to line up alongside some of those efforts and highlight them in future reels and podcasts. Speaking of plants and place and clematis, yes. Many people say clematis, and others say clematis, and I am among those, because that's how my mother said it. And both seem acceptable to me. We know what we're talking about, right? It's the seed heads, of course, that are calling to me right now. They're twirly, twisty, feathery styles, pluming their seeds, and all together, they form light-catching globes of the styles all mixed together, and these, on their vines, spangle the trees and shrubs of the foothills and chaparral here in California right now. In early or late day backlight, these are as good as any autumnal string of lights you might possibly conceive. And they're evocative common names. Old Man's Beard, Traveler's Joy, Virgin Bower, Devil's Darning Needles, Sugar Bowls, and more. And the best common name for the group as a whole seems perfect, the Queen of Vines. Perhaps because their staminate or pollen-bearing flowers have so many stamens they seem crown-like, or that their pistillate or fruit-bearing flowers have so many styles they too seem crowned in their peak fruiting and dispersal season. The genus Clematis in the buttercup family, Ranunculaceae, consists of more than 300 species from around the world and thousands of cultivars. And thankfully for those of us who love beauty and native plant ecology, there are more than 30 North American natives. Clematis are generally deciduous woody vines, bearing white to pink to blue and purple, even magenta, open-faced flowers, which can be quite small or can be as large as your palm showy flowers. Others bear the most lovely, 
bell-shaped blooms, and some are even sub-shrub species, like the Colorado native I grew up with, the sugar bowls, or Clematis hirsutissima, and evergreen species like Clematis armandii, which I had in my garden in Seattle years ago, and I have here in my Northern California garden as well. It's a shade-tolerant, sweetly-scented, spring-blooming focal point on the fence outside of one of my daughter's bedroom windows. While there are so many nice and colorful cultivars, the range and beauty of the natives offer us so many good choices. Every garden should try one or two of their natives as well. Of the native Clematis species in North America, Clematis virginiana is perhaps one of the most widely distributed, also known as virgin's bower or devil's darning needles. This is native to the entire eastern half of the United States. Here in California, we enjoy three native species of Clematis, and between John and my gardens, we have two species— the chaparral or pipestem clematis, clematis lasiantha, the dry, heat-loving species that is crawling over Toyon and Manzanita in the foothills right now, and western virgin bower, clematis ligustisifolia, which likes a little more water and tends to grow in seeps and riparian corridors, and I find bears a sweet fragrance. There's also a Southern California species, clematis possiflora. I like the clematis foliage, its small, irregular, three-leafed tendrils and their clamoring ways, in the wild and in a vase. In addition to our two natives and the shade-happy clematis armandii I already noted, I also have clematis serosa Whistly Cream in my garden. I was lucky enough to get this at Chalk Hill Clematis years ago now, and the pale cream clusters of bell-shaped blooms brighten my deciduous winter-climbing rose canes, and the vine even scrambles gently into a native oak. Yes, it's winter blooming in my Zone 7-8 garden. Zira Plants in Portland, Oregon, which had it for sale when I visited this past weekend, describes Clematis serosa whistly cream this way. Quote, winter does not end the clematis season, and whistly cream delights from November to February, with masses of small cup-shaped cream flowers, a very vigorous evergreen vine that prefers part shade to full sun, and a large support system. The vine grows to 15 feet tall very quickly, and it enjoys rich to average well-drained soil. It's visited by Anna's hummingbirds throughout the winter if they are resident in your area. The delicate appearance of this vine belies its vigor. Nice-looking glossy foliage and flowers which are cold-hardy into the low 20s. If the open flowers are frozen, more buds will be waiting for milder weather. 
In summer, this plant goes into a kind of drought dormancy, so no water is necessary at that time, and the leaves droop and may even drop, which is totally normal. This winter-growing vine will wake up quickly with the first cool rains, as it is doing in my garden right now. It is excellent up a large tree or along a pergola, and it may be pruned hard in late summer, although I have never pruned mine. It blooms on both old and new wood. As intimated by this description, and true of most clematis other than the very doubled, overly hybridized choices, butterflies, bees, and hummingbirds are as attracted to clematis as we humans are. I imagine any overwintered, feathery styles of the seed heads are put to use in many nests come springtime. Pruning clematis seems to be one of the things that confounds or intimidate gardeners. And I tend to be fairly lax about these things, as just noted with my unpruned whistly cream vine. But I remember my former mother-in-law pointing out to me that the plant itself sort of tells you how to prune based on two things, when your plants bloom and come early spring where they are pushing out new growth. There are in fact three groups of clematis that all do well with a slightly different pruning regimen. So if you'd like more detailed information on each of these, I have listed a link to the Piedmont Master Gardeners of Virginia, a state which has 11 native species of clematis, and their very good instructions for pruning all three groups. Check out these instructions, this link, and more, including some images of clematis seeds and their flowers in this week's show notes under the podcast tab at cultivatingplace.com. Follow the drop-down menu under the podcast tab and scroll down in this week's post to Speaking of Plants and Place. Because as I like to point out when I give an in-person talk, our gardens, at their best, show us who we are. They tell others who we are. But if we're doing our gardening right, our gardens also let us know and others exactly where we are also, right here at home on this generous planet. Join us again next week when we head to the Pacific Northwest to speak with native plant nursery co-founders Kristen Curran and Drew Merritt of Humble Roots Nursery in Oregon's iconic Columbia River Gorge. Their new book in the Timber Press Native Plant Primer series is The Pacific Northwest Native Plant Primer, 225 Plants for an Earth-Friendly Garden. They share so many secrets and so much knowledge of the wildflowers and wonders of their place. That's right here next week. Listen in. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio, a service of CAP Radio, licensed to Chico State Enterprises. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by listeners just like you through the support button at the top right-hand corner of every page at cultivatingplace.com. 
cultivating places also made possible through the generosity of the Caddo Shaw Foundation. We are also grateful for a recent gift from Ground Studio Gives. The Cultivating Place team includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler, tech and web support from Angel Haracha, and weekly show transcripts by Doulis Transcription. We said a fond farewell and many, many thanks to communications intern Sheila Stern. We're based on the traditional and present homelands of the Machupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating places distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. <laughs>